is a blue. You're listening to Three Valleys Radio. Welcome to our In Conversation program. Every week we talk to a sporting personality to find out just what makes them tick. From their early childhood, to their professional career, to their musical tastes. We cover it all. So sit back and enjoy as we talk to this week's special guest. Here on Three Valleys Radio. Well, good evening. Welcome to In Conversation. My guest tonight is the author of a book called Dote, and his name is Jamie Reed. Good evening, Jamie. How are you? Good. I'm very well, thanks. Good evening. Uh, well, thanks very much for coming on the show and talking to us about this, because it's a very fascinating story, I find. I was lucky enough to get the book for Christmas. One of my sons gave it to me. and uh, Oh, terrific. Uh, I've, um, I've been, uh, yeah, amused and entertained by it ever since, really. Um, but, <laughs> but, but first of all, I mean, it is the story of the 1960s racehorse doping gang, as to quote him on here, and you actually won yep. the 2013 William Hill Sports Book of the Year, so well done for that. Thank you very much. Yeah, um, it was a wonderful, wonderful evening. Yeah. Now, um, what brought you to, to write a book such as this? Well, I mean, it, it, it sort of came out of years and years of a lifelong fascination with and love of horse racing mm-hmm. and the whole betting and gambling side of racing. Yeah. Um, to be honest, um, I mean, I was I was introduced to racing by my grandmother. Um, when I was as young as about seven years old, I remember she giving me the money to have a bet on the 1961 Grand National, and I picked the winner because it was a grey horse called Nicholas Silver. Yeah, yeah. And I think I, I think I, I had a had a, a couple of bob, as we used to say, a couple of shillings each way on him, and he and he won at um, something like twelve to one or whatever. So that was yeah. a, a good start. But mm. um, I used to be taken racing in the south of England where I grew up when I was a kid. And I love the atmosphere of tracks like Epsom, Brighton, um, the ones with a bit of a raffish aura to them, slightly spivish. Um, I found it all fascinating. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it got me watching racing regularly on television. And, and again, being the age I am now, my, my year of watching, watching racing TV in the 60s and into the 70s was the great Peter O'Sullivan was the commentator on the BBC, yeah. who was absolutely peerless. Yeah. And, and then I started going racing with like-minded friends um, when, I, when I left home. And we would we I think my first Cheltenham festival that I went to as a race goer was in 1973, and I've tried to go pretty much nearly every year since then, other than the last few with the with the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And um, I just became absolutely obsessed. You know, I love it, and I've I've, I've done racing journalism. Uh, I worked as a as a racing journalist for for the Independent on Sunday and for the Guardian. Um, and I've done lots of feature articles down the years, and I, I did three or four books 
in the 80s into the early 90s. And then I had a kind of gap for, for about 10 years, really. Um, and then I came back with Doped. Um, it was an idea that I had. I, I remember reading all about the story of these dopers, these horse dopers. And it was very sensational at the time, not least because the Derby favorite, a horse called Pinterischio, was one of the horses that they got at. Mm. And then they ended up getting at uh, a horse belonging to the Queen Mother. And the whole thing became very dramatic and colorful. Um, and the fact that it involved this, this, this bookie and punter, Bill Roper, who had a wife and family in North London, but he'd also fallen madly in love with their former au pair, who was this very lovely Swiss-French young woman called Micheline Lujan. And Bill wanted to try and keep her as his mistress and lover and have a life with her. And he got involved in the whole racket of stopping favourites and, and fixing races. And it, what might have started out as something you might pull off once or twice um, in order to, 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 to make, make, a, make money out of it, he ended up getting in much deeper than he ever wanted to. And real villains became involved, and they started threatening him and saying that, that, that more horses had to be doped. And he, he, he was caught between the, the gangsters on the one side and the law on the other. Um, so, it, you know, it's a fascinating story about also about the social background to racing in, 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 the, in, the, in the 50s and 60s, the class system that still existed, the antiquated nature of the jockey club then, who were, who were no good at all at being sheriffs and coppers and trying to catch the dopers. It wasn't until the real Scotland Yard got involved that mm. they, were, they were taken down. Um, and it, and it's, it's such an interesting period in history, that, all through the period of the Profumo scandal and things that were happening. England was just on the cusp of change, you know, and yeah, all that... Yeah. All that fed into the background to the book, um, and and so I did that, and, and we had great success with it. And I've done three others since then. I, I did a book following that called Bloom, which was a true story of a racehorse trainer called John Goldsmith, mm -hmm. who was a, a secret agent in World War II for the Special Operations Executive. And then one called Monsieur X, which was all about a French gambler, Patrice de Muti, who took on the Paris Mutuel state betting system in France in the 60s and 70s and made a fortune from, from very brilliant uh, and inspired betting coups. But again, he ended up being in, in the grip of the French mafia, um, and he ended up dead, I'm sorry to say. And then the most recent one I've done was a biography of the bookmaker Victor Chandler, yeah. who's one of the most biggest and most colorful bookies of, of, of the years from the 70s till to the 21st century and um that was tremendous fun um that's called put your life on it and that that was published last autumn so um that that that's the sort of span of the books really mm, and yeah the one thing that's constant is you know i'm i'm a passionate lover of the turf and uh, all all the stories and the scams and the scoundrels and the the kind of damon runyon flavor mm. inside of it Okay, well, it's time for a musical break now. We always play a few musical tracks with these in conversation sessions, and Jamie has come up with his five. And the first one is Mop the Hoople and All the Young Dudes. <laughs> Jive. Don't want to stay alive when you're 25. 
Okay, well, going, going going back to the well, let's go back to the book um, in terms yep. of the actual story. Um, uh-huh. It seemed from from my reading of it that you know back in 1959, 1960, I suppose was the yep. the starting time. Um, yep. And our friend Bill um, got yep. this got this idea, but um, <clears throat> you know, how did you get your research to, to, to find out you know exactly what went on yep. basically? Well, I was very lucky. First of all, I had built up a lot of connections in the racing and bookmaking world. Mm -hmm. Um, Some of them, uh, indeed, people who helped me a lot with the biography of Victor Chandler, people who remember his father, Victor Senior, who was also a bookmaker in Britain in the the 50s and into the 60s. 
and indeed Victor's grandfather before them. And I knew people. I also was lucky enough to, to know Peter O'Sullivan. And people like that were able to give names, give me insights, give me background detail. And then um, I took advantage of, of, the, of the wonderful um, newspaper archive, the British Newspaper Library, which used to be in a funny old building up in North London and is now in the British Library in St Pancras, where you could look up a lot of the races and you could see the, the suspicious performances of the beaten favourites and so on. Mm. And then um, I went to the National Archives in Kew and I managed to find the details of the eventual court case, the prosecution of Bill Roper and his gang at Lewis Assizes in 1963. And that gave me a lot of extra information. And each time I found another name, I went back to my sources in the, in the bookmaking game and they led me to, to, to another person and then another person. And it, it eventually I got to meet um, Jackie Dyer, who was one of the dopers who was still alive then. Yeah. And they all had their stories to tell. And um, it's, it's something that the racing writer David Ashforth always feels, that, that some of these characters in the sport, when they get to a certain age, they don't really know how much longer life has got for them. And, and they are prepared to reveal things that they would never, never have, have discussed um, 20, 30 years ago. Um, and so it took quite a long period of time. You know, the book, mm. book was commissioned in 2012. Um, uh, sorry, it was commissioned in 2011. And it, it was quite a lot, you know, about 18 months of hard work. But it, but it was great fun doing it. It was like mm. a detective story. And um, gradually all the pieces fitted into place. And since it's been published, what's also interesting about these books is that people get in touch with you and they'll say, you know what, I am so-and-so. I was the character you've written about. I remember this. I was there. I can tell you a story about this one or that one. And that's very interesting, too. And it, and it enables you to get, you know, even deeper into, into the truth of what really went on. Mm, I'm not one of them, I'm afraid. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry. Some of them, some of them had what could be called a checkered career, so you, you're probably much better off not being one of them. Yeah, probably. But but looking at at, at the story, I mean, I, I, what I find um, you know fascinating, but also bizarre in in the context is you've got these these trainers that that uh, obviously you know some of them were were quite well known trainers. Yep. And. Um, they had a, these wonderful stables with with all the facilities that were yep. concurrent with the time, and yet a bell didn't ring somewhere to say, "Look, we ought to protect these horses. We ought to have a better security system that we've got." Uh, it's it's extraordinary that really. I mean, they were so naive, and in a sense, they were so they they had their own world, and it was a wonderful world, but a little world, mm. and they but they were just no match for people who were much smarter and more streetwise than them. And the other thing I think that, that did absolutely fascinate me and, and has interested people who've read it, and I've had several proposals to turn it into a film, which still hasn't happened, but I'm, I'm hopeful that one day it will. And what attracted, again, the, the film producers was the fact that Bill Roper used Michelin, his lover, to um, act out the role of a, of a, of a potential racehorse owner, a wealthy, smart French woman. Mm -hmm. And he would drive her to racing stables in a, in a, in a, in a splendid chauffeur-driven motor 
and they'd turn up on uh, on an afternoon when Bill knew full well that a, that a trainer and a lot of the trainers of that era they were captain this and major that you know mm, they still yeah. use their titles from World War Two. He knew that they were away at the races. Yeah. And he'd turn up and he'd say, well, I've got Mademoiselle this or the Countess that or Lady whatever. He'd give her various pseudonyms. And she's interested in having a horse trained by the Major. And the people in the yard would say, well, I'm awfully sorry. The Major's away at Sandown or Lingfield or whatever. And Bill would say, oh, that's very unfortunate because I've got to drive her down to Dover to get the ferry back to France this afternoon. And she won't be able to come back for another few months. Do you think she might be able to look around the yard while the while the major is away and, mm. and just to get a feel of the place and the people would would, would, would say well yes of course you know because mm. this appeared to be somebody of quality somebody important somebody more senior socially than they were and so uh, the, the micheline would be shown around and she'd be very charming and very attractive and she'd smile and bill would be behind her and they'd be clocking all the details of the stable security which was usually non-existent yeah and where the where the particular horses were and then she'd leave and bid them goodbye and how that they would be in touch with the major in due course in order to send him a horse which of course they never did mm. but what did happen four or five nights later is that bill's gang who were the dirtier side of the operation would would turn up at the yard in the in you know literally in the middle of the night knowing exactly where they could find a horse that was favorite for a race at at, at Plumpton or Ludlow in a in a in a 24 hours time and that they would know the box and they'd go in and administer the drugs yeah and the drugs they were using were mainly they 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 were giving horses something that would either keep them awake all night um a kind of amphetamine so that they would uh, walk their box, as they say, and then, then they'd be exhausted by the time they got to the races the next day. Yeah. Or they'd give them other kind of slow-acting drugs that would just basically um, suppress their, their, their energy levels, competitive instincts. And, you know, let's not beat about the bush. It was, it was a very nasty business doing that. Mm. Um, one horse that they doped did end up eventually being killed, not actually in a horse race when it ran with the dope in its system. Yeah, but but in a race subsequent to that, and it was it was bad enough to be doping horses running on the flat. Mm. But when they got to the point of doping horses who were jumping fences, then yeah. they were putting not only the horse at risk, but yeah. the life of the jockey was, was going to be at risk too. So yeah. it was a dirty business. More music now, and this time it's the governor. It's Frank Sinatra and luck be a lady delight. They call you Lady Luck But there is room for doubt At times you have A very unladylike way Of running out You're on this date with me The pickings have been lush and yet before this evening is over You might give me the brush You might forget your manners You might refuse to stay And so the best that I can do is pray
be a lady tonight. Luck be a lady tonight. Luck if you've ever been a lady to begin with. Luck be a lady tonight. Let a gentleman see How nice a dame you can be I know the way you've treated other guys you've been with Luck be a lady with me A lady doesn't leave her escort It isn't fair It isn't nice A lady doesn't wander all over the room and blow on some other guy's dice Let's keep this party polite Never get out of my sight Stick with me, baby I'm the fella you came in with Luck be a lady tonight Gentlemen, see just how nice, how nice a, a dame you can be. I know the way you've treated other guys you've been with. Hey, luck, be a lady with me. A lady doesn't leave. Our escort It isn't fair And it's not nice A lady doesn't wander All over the room And blow on some Other guy's dice So let's keep the party
Sinatra, of course, and luck be a lady tonight. You get the impression from the book, though, that, that from Bill Roper's point of view, um, you know, once he'd sort of done one or two, that it, I don't, I, I got the impression anyway that it wasn't necessarily a, a you know a big plan that we'll carry on doing this for two, three, four years, however long it was, um, and you know, um, keep going. It, it was almost as though, well, we'll just try it, and, and then it sort of escalated. Yes. Would would that be fair to say? I think that's absolutely right. I think he did it initially um, because he needed money to be able to sustain his, his double life. Mm. He had his wife and children up in Mill Hill in North London. He had Micheline. Micheline wanted to have a job as in, in cosmetics. She wanted to develop her own makeup and face creams for women. And um, she, uh, Bill helped her get a shop at one point in Beecham Place in London, you know, mm. which was very yeah, expensive. Yeah. Um, he had a, a, an apartment in Kensington High Street and he was taking her out to lovely restaurants of the era like the Cock Door and taking her to nightclubs. He was doing all that because he was nearly twice her age. Yeah. And in, in that quaint expression that people used to use back then, people said he was no oil painting. <laughs> he was he was he was a he was a character though. Yeah. He had a lot of charm. I remember Peter O'Sullivan when when I first discussed Bill Roper with him, he smiled and he said to me, Well you could say that he had a certain charisma. <laughs> um and he was he was a great talker and he was quite paternal in a way. I think he felt he, w he could look after and protect this young French woman, but he also wanted to look after his wife. Yeah. Um, and so anyway, he got deeper and deeper into financial difficulties and being involved in the bookmaking game in those days, they would get often get wind of the fact that such and such a horse, you know, with the expressions, it was not off to mm. today or it's yeah. not going to be off tomorrow. I.e., the jockey's been told to go easy on it because the connections don't want it to win tomorrow. They'd rather it won in its next run in three or four weeks' time. So they'd always get inside info like that. And it wasn't too much of a step to go from there to the point of actually administering drugs to make sure that the favourite wouldn't win. And then he didn't necessarily always um, lay those horses himself. He sold that information to other bookmakers. Mm. And, uh, you know, that's also where the book got very interesting because we had to be careful to a degree about what we could mention and say about it. But it was it was no uh, it was no secret at the time or subsequently that bookmaking firms like Ladbrokes did very well out of this yeah. scandal. Yeah. And, um, you know, there, there were connections there which Bill exploited. Um, but I don't think he ever, he did, as you said, he didn't have a master plan to be doing it for two or three years. Mm. He literally got into it. And then there was a gentleman who, who, who had, had form, shall we say, involving uh, doping horses called Charlie Mitchell. And Charlie Mitchell was a proper gangster. And he was later involved with the Cray Twins. And he threatened Bill and basically threatened him with exposure or violence if he didn't carry on doping and do more doping. Yeah. And the underworld were, were, were getting their hooks into it. And and that's when it got more and more unpleasant. But when you look at it from the bookmaker's point of view, it's it's not surprising that, that they were anxious to get involved. Because, I mean, obviously, you know, first of all, you lay the one the horse that is has been doped because you know it's not going to do yep. anything. So there's, there's one source of income. Absolutely. And then obviously you pile it on the horse. But then again, the, the horse that you pile in on, I presume... 
I mean, you, there's a certain element of doubt with that because you can't be absolutely certain that the second or the third favourite is going to win the race, though, can you? You can't. Indeed, you can't. And it, and it, it was a risky medium. Mm. And I think one of the other things that was so interesting about that period was there was much less betting on football or other sports in the, in the late 50s and the early 60s. Yeah. And horse racing was still very big mm. as a national sport and pastime. And racing news would be on the front pages of newspapers, not just the back pages. Yeah. And so the level of betting was much greater on a day-to-day basis than it would be today. You know, in, in, in as they called him, Young Victor's Day or his father's day, they would go racing four times a week. They wouldn't just go on Saturday. They'd go on Friday and they'd go to places like Plumpton and mm. Fontwell on a Monday and Tuesday. And they'd, they'd expect a core of punters there and money circulating in the ring from which they could make a profit if they had their wits about them. Yeah. So the, the whole betting medium was much, much livelier and much stronger than it is now. Um, but it, 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 there, there were so many characters, you know, and, and they were all they were all a bit duckers and divers and mm. they but but they lived very well it, it, it wasn't the era of rather soulless online gambling yeah. um and and you know just computers deciding what the odds should be these characters when they went away for a big festival like cheltenham or they went up to aintree for the national they stayed in in the best hotels and they used to eat well they dressed very well they they wore tailor-made suits and ties they they used to meet up, play chemin de fer and poker at night, um, and the, and the jockeys and the trainers and the owners would all mix with them. Yeah. Um, and Peter O'Sullivan used to be in the thick of it often, you know. Mm-hmm. And and, um, and it's a it's a fascinating world that's that's gone. I'm afraid, really. I don't think you know it's not going to come back again. But no. um, it, it it again for me, having grown up in that time. I had a lot of fun kind of revisiting it in print, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I can imagine. So, uh, you know, at, at this time, I'm not too familiar because, I, I mean, 63, I would have been about 14, I think, something like that. Right. Um, were the likes of, of William Hills and Ladbrokes and Corals, were they all around then or not? Or were... Oh, very much so, yeah. And it's very interesting, uh, the story of all of them. I mean, William Hill himself, was for a long time the biggest player on the race course in the ring and he had offices at one point in park lane hill was a big man he came from the west midlands um he, he was a tough customer and um in 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 the in the years just after world war one he was in the black and tans in southern ireland which if, if anybody's listening and knows a bit about that their war of independence that that was a pretty dirty business there as well the black and tans were kind of semi-professional part auxiliary band of uh, sort of soldier complice that the, that were recruited by the british government to um fight the ira but it was a very very rough um conflict and hill was involved in that um and then in his years as a bookmaker he was a big man and he lay big bets very big bets, but he was known to manipulate the results of races at times, and he had certain jockeys who would do his bidding when he didn't want them to win. Um, Ladbrokes had been the bookmakers to what would be known in, in, in the old days as the quality, you know, mm-hmm. going back to the, the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s. They had offices in, 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 in London near Bond Street. Um, gentlemen gamblers used to drop in there for lunch and tea, and it was all, you know, peers of the realm used to bet with them, and they would take very large bets. 
Um, and then they became acquired by a man called Max Parker, who was the uncle of Cyril Steen, who then went on to become the, the, the sort of chief executive and driving force of Ladbrokes in the 60s. And they were very shrewd, canny operators indeed. And the impression from history and the people who lived through it is that they did very well out mm. of Bill's uh, escapades. Um, but they were all there, Joe Coral, all of them, they were all still involved. Um, and if you went to a, a race meeting, if, you know, not just to Cheltenham, if you went to somewhere like Wincanton, mm. you'd, you'd have had three times the bookmakers in the ring that you have today. No. Um, and and the amounts of money they took would have been much much bigger than they are nowadays. Mm. There's certainly a few characters around anyway. Even these days, I, I mean, have you ever come across Gary Wiltshire? Oh, was he's wonderful, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> well, but thank goodness for people like him. There are a few characters left. There's Gary, yeah. and at one point, obviously, we had Harry Findlay, who now yeah, seems now, funny to be enough, back I've, in, in the UK. I've, I've met, done an interview with Harry Findlay. He's another character, yeah. to say the least. Oh, a tremendous character, you yeah, know. And that, yeah. that era when he had, had half of Denman, yeah. and, and they were running against Corto Star. I mean, those were wonderful times. Yeah. And that brought back memories of the, the long ago. But... I think it was um, in Peter O'Sullivan's day that there were there were there was this sort of extraordinary sense that um, the racetrack and the racing world was one milieu in which people from the upper classes and the society could mingle with people from a much lower social background yeah. in ways that they rarely did away from the race course, unless maybe it was in a certain kind of nightclub in London. Mm. And it, 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 it's again, it's like the, the, the background to the Profumo affair. And, and Bill Roper um, was, was able to mix in those circles uh, initially because he was very skillful at uh, putting bets on for wealthy people, yeah. um, being here, there and everywhere at Royal Ascot and finding out what they wanted to have their money on and getting them the best odds and, and, and so on and so forth. And then, you know, the, the, somebody like uh, be allowed to mix in their company. But the jockey club, who were the, were, were the people absolutely, uh, they were God as far as the rules of racing and licensing and everything was concerned. They remained a very autocratic, very reactionary organization throughout this era. And you had people like um, Sir Randall Fielden, um, the former major general, um, who'd been in charge of the NAFI in World War II, um, he 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 said famously in in one speech, you know, about racing. There are there are many that know a little, um, and some who know a lot, you know. And we mm. we demand that they come forward and speak, but none of the bookmakers were going to do that. And the the jockey club's security was in the hands of an ex army officer who looked like John Cleese in Forty Towers. <laughs> And, uh, you know, they were, they were, yeah. it was the Keystone Cops compared yeah. with, with, with what the bookmakers Jamie's did. next musical track is These Foolish Things from Brian Ferry. Oh, will you never let me be? Oh, will you never set me free? The ties that bound us are still around. There's no escape that I can see And still those little things remain 
that bring me happiness or pain. A cigarette that bears a lipstick's traces, an airline ticket to romantic places, and still my heart has wings. These foolish things remind me of you. A tinkling piano in the next apartment. Those stumbling words that told you what my heart meant—a fairground's painted swings. These foolish things remind me of you. You came, you saw, you conquered me. When you did that to me, I somehow knew that this had to be. March that make my heart a dancer, a telephone that rings, but who's to answer? Oh, how the ghost of you clings! These foolish things remind me of you. Gardenia perfume lingering on a pillow, while strawberry. Only seven francs a kilo, and still my heart has wings. These foolish things remind me of you. The park at evening when the bell has sounded. The Ile de France with all the girls around it. The beauty that is spring. These foolish things remind me of you. I know that this was bound to be. These things have haunted me, for you've entirely enchanted me. The sigh of midnight trains in empty stations. Silk stockings thrown aside, dance invitations. Oh, how the ghost of you clings! These foolish things remind me of you. First daffodils and long excited cables, and candlelight on little corner tables. And still my heart has wings. These foolish things remind me of you. The smile of gobble and the scent of roses. The waiters whistling as the last bar closes. The song that Crosby sings. These foolish things. Remind me of you. How strange, how sweet to find you still. These things are dear to me that seem to bring you so near to me. 
The scent of smoldering leaves the whale of steamers To lovers on the street to walk like dreamers Oh, how the ghost of you clings These foolish things remind me Ferry there and these foolish things. So, I mean, talking of the Jockey Club, I mean, we all know how how powerful they are now. I mean, ask a Sheen yep. Murphy, for example, this week. I'm sure he's probably... that's it. But but don't. If, sorry to interrupt, but mm. don't forget. Nowadays, the, the 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 rules are enforced by the British Horse Racing Authority, mm. which is not the Jockey Club. It's not the same thing. No. Some members of the Jockey Club are involved in it but its board and its officials are paid officials who are supposed to be professional racing administrators. Mm. Um, whereas in the 60s, in the early 60s, they were still all amateurs. And to be in the jockey club, you had to be a gentleman who'd been, if possible, to Eton. You had to have money, land, etc. Mm. Um, but, but, but the BHA, who have, who have been um, dealing with Oisin Murphy, they, they are, you know, well... Nominally, they are they are a much more um, of, a, of, a, of, a, of a sort of civil service, if you like, a, a capable, um, independent set of administrators, um, and and they're certainly smarter than the, the jockey club members who were trying yeah. to deal with Bill Roper. Well, of course, I mean it's a, it's a little bit like football. I mean, you know, in the earlier days, you you had just all these old men on the football association, and now absolutely you know, the yes. whole thing is completely yeah. different now, and, and and just as what it yep. is. But it does beg the question. That, that however however much uh, these people worked at it and and purported to be yeah. you know the uh, jockey club bha whichever we call them um yeah. again they must have been totally oblivious to what was going on for sure because i mean surely somebody would have twigged it after i don't know after the first i, I think four or five yeah, races i think they, they they were farcically um uh, oblivious to it in many respects i mean one of the stories i remember in in dope was one of the last um, dopings that they pulled off was at Lewis races in um, August 1962 and Lewis was a lovely track there in Sussex in the town down there where a lot of racehorses used to be trained John Gosden's father yeah. was known as Towser Gosden he used to train there and a, a future Cheltenham Gold Cup winner was trained there Saffron Tartan um, the race course was high up on the downs you could look out towards the sea and it was absolutely fabulous on a fine day when the sun shone it could be pretty miserable when it was wet and windy mm. but it was a small track very much a you know a division three yeah. course and they usually raced on a monday or a tuesday but they had one meeting on a saturday in august and the roper gang doped the favorite in a three-horse race which was um, the last race on the card and uh, various of the stewards and the judge who was meant to rule over the, the finish, they had departed the track already 
because they had a social engagement to go on to. So they weren't even present to see the race. Yeah. Um, and, it, and things like that, you know, cropped up throughout the, 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 the story. What, what was um, uh, the, the gang's undoing was that they, uh, they, they got their sights on a horse owned by the Queen Mother um, called Laffey, who was a steeplechaser trained by Major Peter Cazalet, who was a very, uh, rather, I, w- I would say one of those men, people said to me, he was respected rather than liked, mm-hmm. um, or rather than loved, shall we say. Yeah. He was respected. He, he was a very good trainer of jumpers. His stable was called Fairlawn, um, not far from Tunbridge in Kent, which again is country I know very well because I grew up around there. And the, the gang visited Fairlawn when Cazalet was away one day and they then went back and broke in and they doped his horse, Laffey. And he realized the horse had been doped as soon as he went in the box in the morning and the horse was withdrawn. But Cazalet was a staunch monarchist and he felt that the Queen Mother and the royal family could be embarrassed by the whole saga if, if this came out. So he also, being the kind of man he was, he had contacts high up in the jockey club and right up into the government of the day. And he got in touch with the Home Office. And in, in turn, there were conversations with the Metropolitan Police Commissioner, who in those days was an independent figure rather than a police officer. Um, <coughs> and the, and the, 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 the consequence of all that was that Scotland Yard took over the investigation from the jockey club. And they assigned um, uh, two flying squad officers to take charge of it. And so, they were tough nuts. And they, they went after the gang in the same way that they went after the great train robbers a year mm. later. And that, that was Bill's downfall. So you could say, me, you know, basically, this was the beginning <laughs> of the end, really. Yes, absolutely. It really was. Yeah. Um, and, it, and it was a foolish, foolish thing to do. Um, but I think Roper had lost control of his wits slightly by then. And, and when the trial came, um, which also happened at Lewis uh, Assizes in 1963, he famously said under cross-examination, he said, I haven't been very good where the women in my life are concerned. Mm. Um, and um, it, it was all, you know, he, his wife testified as a character witness. Yeah and said that he'd shown her nothing but kindness and consideration in 25 years of marriage, even though he was there on trial with his lover. Um, And um, he, he, as as I've sort of said in the book, you couldn't say that Bill was a good man. He he, he wasn't entirely good, but I don't think he was an entirely bad man either, despite Mm. the activities that he got involved in. Um, and the same is true of some of the other people who were involved with him. And Jackie Dyer, who I met, um, he, he was an old gentleman in his 80s when I met him, living in, in pretty constrained circumstances in a not particularly luxurious um, council flat in Fulham in London. Yeah. And Jackie, he, he dressed up in his suit and tie in order to look smart to chat. He wanted to look a gentleman. But yeah, yeah. You could tell that life hadn't ended up too good for him. No. Um, whereas like Bill, uh, Bill and Micheline, uh, they, they did, after he came out of prison, um, they did get together and they stayed together until mm. he died. Oh, um, yeah. Yeah. And so you know that 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 in a, in a in a weird kind of way that did have a happy end. More music now, and then 
God, an appropriate song, perhaps. Uh, although in the case of Bill Roper, it wasn't really applicable. It's the band of the Philharmonic from Boston, and it's called The Great Escape. theme there of course from the great escape and uh, it's a pity that uh, bill didn't have steve mcqueen helping him out to he might have escaped then so so looking at the, the, the whole saga from from start to finish um do you think that, that you know it amazes me in a way that, it, that nobody's tried to do it in the meantime but would you say that the advances in science and just generally detection rates are, are so much more on the ball these days that it, it, it wouldn't be worth trying it? Well, I think you've got two um, parts to all this. Firstly, um, there was the, the scandal involving uh, the punter Brian Wright in the, uh, in, the, in, the, in the late 90s and early 21st century, where he was um, involved in having horses doped. Um, and they'd found a, a stopping drug there that they were using. And he had a, 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 an ex-jockey helping him get into stabling areas. Um, and that, that was a scandal of its own. Um, and there were suggestions that Wright was um, doping horses in order to back the second favourites and so on, and that he was laundering money from drug deals, mm. um, which always sounded a little bit far-fetched because anybody who's been to, say, Plumpton or Exeter on a, on a Monday afternoon in 2004 or 2022, we'll know that there's so few people there 
seriously yeah. betting money mm. that you'd have a, you know, as Victor Chandler said, it would be a bloody long time if you wanted to try and launder a hundred grand in that <laughs> environment. But, yeah. Yeah. but Wright did get involved in, in race fixing. And then I think the, the more serious concern in the present day is that there is this fear that, that some trainers uh, in this country, possibly in Ireland, very possibly in America, definitely in France, definitely. Some of them are up to Lance Armstrong type antics. Yeah. They are involved with um, vets and chemists who can prescribe drugs, various steroids that horses are not allowed to race uh, with their, within their bloodstream on race day, but they can they can give horses uh, treatments to try and cover up weaknesses or deficiencies, and they have masking agents that make it hard for <coughs> for science and, and and experts to detect, and that therefore, you know, it's not a level playing field anymore, as one Irish trader has said in the last twelve months. Yeah, um, and that is a big worry because it goes on in America to a shocking degree. And the fear is that it's it's happening in racing in Europe as well. Well, it's time for Jamie's last musical track, and it's America and the Horse with No Name.
America there and a horse with no name. Well, there certainly have been some mentions in in, in the direction of Ireland <laughs> over the last what I don't know twelve months at least. I've I've read they about have, it on several absolutely. occasions. Absolutely. Yep. So yep. You know, yep. Clearly, somebody's uh, not given up on the prospect of uh, making some money out of it. Absolutely. Suppose, you know. And and you know the, as we've said the. Uh, you, you've seen these things. It, it sometimes comes under the general title of blood doping, mm. um, and and it's 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 complex and it's tricky, but it's it's again it's a nasty business. And there's been a huge scandal in America where the FBI arrested twenty odd people a few years ago, including two trainers, one of whom had won the Kentucky Derby a few years ago, um, and discovered that him and his associates were buying these medications from crooked vets. And they had sort of criminal elements involved in 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 setting things up. And one of the trainers has has uh, decided to sort of you know give states evidence. And one of the other trainers is looking a lot of jail time. Mm-hmm. And it's it's a it's a it's a pretty lurid case. Yeah. And and the man who trained the, the first past the post in the Kentucky Derby last year, Bob Baffert, the Californian trainer. He's in the middle of a huge scandal over giving medications in, in proper medications to horses before and on race days, mm. including the horse that won the Kentucky Derby last year, who subsequently collapsed and died suddenly last December um, in a training workout. And the fear is that these drugs they're using are masking serious um, weaknesses in a horse's constitution that, that end up in some cases causing them to have the equivalent of a heart attack. So it's... Yeah. It's an ugly side to it all, but but I think that it, it will be science and, uh, and and highly skilled veterinary uh, detection that will clamp down on this, you know, in in a, in a way that it will eclipse anything that we saw twenty or forty or fifty years ago. But when you look at it, um, Jamie, I mean, it, you know, at the end of the day, it's the old old story, isn't it? It's man falls for woman. And suddenly he completely loses all control of his common senses, <laughs> and, he, and he ends up in something like this. Um, I mean, I suppose any, the only thing you can say is that at least uh, they did apparently, as you say, end up 
sticking together um, until he he passed away. Absolutely, it's it's it is that old old. It is the oldest story of them all, mm. and um, she was. By all accounts, very lovely. Jackie Dyer said to me that she could charm the birds out of the trees. Mm. And they they genuinely loved each other. Yeah. Um, and she, when she came out of prison, um, she ended up, they ended up living in South Africa. And she had a business doing interior design and decoration. And she was very successful with mm. that. Um, and um, that, that, that was, their, 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 the arc of their story was fascinating. I... I I was given access to, to, to some details about her life by family members on the condition that I didn't give away certain things at the time, um, but they, you know, they've all passed away now, so it's yeah. okay. Yeah. But um, it, yeah, it, 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 it is that element of it. Mm. I, I wouldn't have really wanted to write a story about a bunch of people who were just utterly thuggish no, and no. brutal in their treatment of horses. No. It was the human element of Bill's relationship with Micheline that really lifted it into the, into into something else, you know, um, and made it a story. Hopefully, that women would enjoy as well as men, you yeah. know, Because racing is a very male pastime for yeah. a, or for a lot of us. But this this was interesting because it had a woman in in a central role as well, um, yeah. you know, very much the star role. <laughs> like, yeah, I suppose. But look, we're running out of time, Jamie. Um, I think it suffice to say, first of all, if any of our listeners want the book, it you can get it from Amazon, I'm sure, and it's called Doped, written by Jamie Reed, your good self, and it was the winner Thank of you. the 2013 William Hill Sports Book of the Year. And having read it myself, I can tell you, you won't you won't want to put it down once you get started. It's a it's a fascinating story, and uh, if you've got any interest in horse racing, and hopefully you're listening to this program because you have. Then uh, I'm sure it will it will um, it will keep you going for quite a while. That's for certain. So, Bill, thank you, Bill. What am I calling you, Bill? I'm Bill Roper. I'm thinking of that. Um, <laughs> not Bill Roper. Yeah. We're not related. <laughs> right, Bill. <laughs> no, sorry, Jamie. Um, thank you ever so much for coming on the show, Jamie, and doing this. Thank it's, you it's, very it's, much. It's been it's really um, really fascinating story, as I say. And um, you know, I think you've done a super job with the book. So, thank you very much for thank doing that. Thank you very much. Well, that was Jamie Reed, the author of a book called Doped, which is the 2013 William Hill Sports Book of the Year. And it's obviously about doping, believe it or not. And I'm sure you can get it at most bookshops, but for certain, Amazon will have it. So I hope you've enjoyed that this week. This is Three Valleys Radio. The heart is a and you've been listening to the In Conversation program with A.D. Hopper. No space to in this town. Make sure you join us every week here on Three Valleys Radio. Please join us again next week, same time, same station. Bye for now.